0: the word i feel like this is an important word tonight and if y'all could just give me your best ear and full attention and as little moving around as possible it's just distra- you know just any distractions and let's really believe god i believe this word is going to change lives so father we come to you in jesus name and through his blood right now lord we lift up this word as we agree together and lord i pray that everywhere this is going even now that your holy spirit would move into where people are in a powerful way and Lord help us to give you our best ear our full attention good fertile soil of hearts and minds anointed eyes and ears and by the Holy Spirit just help us to get captivated just to get focused on what you're saying That we're not distracted by the things but the Holy Spirit will help us to get everything out of this we need to and Lord I pray that good soil right now that you would speak through me your word as living seeds of truth that will be sown into good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives and watered by the Holy Spirit And take root grow and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes Lord let your word let it be the washing of the water of the Word of God to purify people Lord let your word go out as a hammer that's gonna break down every stronghold as a sword that's gonna pierce and penetrate and get where it needs to go let your word be light tonight that will shine forth and dispel all the darkness all the lies all the deception of the enemy and bring truth and revelation Lord, we ask you to enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we can see and we can understand, Lord, by your spirit, as Paul put in Ephesians, that the eyes of our hearts be enlightened, that we might know the hope to which you've called us, our glorious inheritance, but help us, Lord, to be able to see in a way maybe we haven't seen before. And, Lord, I pray that we will never be the same, but let this word truly get in us. And as you speak through me, Lord, let everything be said tonight that needs to be said. Lord, we commit this night unto you And the Bible says the enemy is like birds of the air that try to steal the seed. And so, Lord, we bind up everything of the enemy that would try to steal the seed or try to hinder this word in any way. We bind it now. We bind every distraction. Anything that would try to hinder, we command to be bound to go right now in Jesus' name. And let the winds of your spirit, Lord, carry this everywhere it needs to go as your angels watch over it. And we stand on the promise that your word will not return void, but go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. So, Lord, we thank you for hearing and answering every prayer right now, meeting every need. There's an expectation when two or three agree on earth is touching anything, it will be done. So, we believe we have received it now, and we expect it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for agreeing with me. And if you would, please, as little moving around as possible. And please give me your best ear and full attention and help me, help me out tonight. I really appreciate it. But my wife and I went down to Cane Ridge together. And we kind of had the place to ourselves. So it was great to be able to be there. And we prayed there. And, and the presence of God was really awesome upon us. It was very life changing. That was a very holy, hallowed, powerful move of God. Back in around 1799 to 1801. And um, anyway, I'm going to talk a little bit about that revival tonight. And the Bible says in Acts 3:19, "Therefore repent and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord." So again, Acts 3:19. This is the the verse that has to do with revival. there's been all these other things lately and i don't understand this for the life of me i don't understand it because there's even places that will promote studying the revival history and they'll promote the books like god's generals and others that talk about revival but their message they preach is a far cry a far cry from the message of revival you don't hear repentance you don't hear preaching against sin and you don't feel a conviction of the holy spirit friend that's not really revival at all so revival historically this scripture sums it up the apostle Peter said therefore repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord so it is through repentance and God washing our sins away that refreshing and revival will come and so i'm going to deal with that tonight um i want to give you a little bit of background about this historic revival and then i'm going to close out here at the end with a couple of things that really changed my life and so let me start with this there was a man by the name of james McGready that um, was a great preacher and he lived in the carolinas and he was a very fiery preacher he was one that preached against sin he preached it straight he told it like it was and he was a very anointed man of God and he had a heart for revival he had a heart for people being right with God was really the heartbeat of revival is people getting right with God and let me just really emphasize this if that's not going on I don't care if they put revival on every banner you know they they say it on everything they put it on every CD every sermon they say revival this revival that if it's not people getting right with God then it's not revival okay so James McGreedy preached in a way that was very convicting and would deal with people's sin and call people to repentance but as he was there in the Carolinas and he was ministering in that way there were some people that really loved him but there was also some people that really began to hate him and began to oppose his ministry because of the way he preached and there was some it reminds me of the story of uh, whenever Jezebel was trying to destroy Naboth so that Ahab could have his vineyard and the Bible says that there were some sons of Belial or some some translations some worthless men that um, began to stir up false accusations against Naboth to get him killed well there were some people that spiritually speaking were kind of like sons of Belial if you will that had had enough of Mr. McGready in his sermon so they went to the church and they began to tear it down and they set it on fire and burned it now back then you know there would be like one church but it wasn't just for that city it was in but there were actually people from far distances that would, different counties or whatever, that would come into this one church. So instead of having three or four churches, a lot of times there would just be one. And this was that type of church that had different people coming. But it was burned down. And Mr. McGreedy preached a sermon there in the ashes and he preached about, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have it. And he felt God released him. So he moved from there to Kentucky You have to understand some background at this time That Kentucky was not a place that had been really colonized yet And and it was actually kind of the wild west if you will So there was still a lot of Indian hunting ground The people that were moving out there were still trying to clear land and, And set up a homestead There was a lot of sin, a lot of problems that began to creep up and you know this was about 25 years or so after John Wesley and Whitfield and um, Edwards and that great awakening that happened in the mid-1700s that had begun to wane and so now sin began to abound again and it seemed especially in Kentucky because a lot of the people that were moving there were people that had a reason to leave where they were you understand what I'm saying and so there was a lot of sin there and when mr. McGready got there he saw that a lot of people weren't interested in the Lord he saw that mainly all people were interested in was getting a good piece of land and he saw that there was a lot of sin and he was very concerned and so he began to really pray and he began to do some personal fasting for God to send revival to that area okay this was going to become the state of Kentucky it was going to be the 14th state you understand our 13 original um, states now this was going to be the 14th and this was new ground and while this was going on uh, James McGready was there and he saw that was going on he began to really have a burden for this region and so he began to pastor a small church there in kentucky and i would say according to what i've read there were probably maybe around a dozen people but he began to really preach like he always preached he preached the truth and his sermons always had a conviction to them and people felt they need to make sure they were right with god in the church that he was pastoring people truly started getting things right with god and as he was praying as he was fasting as he was preaching truth and as people in his church were repenting it was like the revival began in his church if you will people began to sense even though they were religious people if you had asked them before if they were Christians they would have said they were Christians I mean was, there's a lot of that but they realized that they were not right with the Lord and they began to sense such a A conviction of the Lord and realize I need to make sure I'm right and and that was sweeping through the church well pastor McGready, he um he began to have a burden not only for revival in his church but revival to become something that was sweeping through the landscape there he wanted to implement a communion service now I want you guys to really think about this tonight what I'm saying because it was interesting to me I've studied revival history in depth and I know that communion has always been very powerful in revival but a lot of people miss this and I don't know why they kind of just gloss over and go to the next point but the communion service had a lot to do with this revival and what he wanted to do was he he felt there were some revivals that he was familiar with in Ulster that had happened. And he was familiar with um, Whitfield's revivals, you know, in the First Great Awakening. And he knew that they they cherished the communion table and that affected things. And so he wanted to implement a communion service. And so he began to, um, to get with other ministers. And he wanted other ministers from other congregations to come in and them have like a once a year time where different churches could come together and they could pray they could worship they could maybe fast some and they would take the lord's supper together and they would believe god to send revival to this region and so this it was the year was 1799 and he set this thing up and people came in and as they begin to pray and they begin to worship and they had set aside some time for fasting but as they took communion together the spirit of God really began to move the people that were present began to have an awesome fear of God begin to come upon them they began to realize maybe they were just religious maybe they really weren't right with God like they thought they were they begin to be convicted, they be, God begin to move upon them and they begin to really search their heart and get things right with God so revival now was not just in McGrady's church, now it was beginning to, to bleed out into other churches and of course they were talking about, you know, man we felt God's presence there in such an awesome way and this, you know, it began to be talked about and so James McGready said you know we need to plan this for the following year 1800 we need to have people come in and they can join with us we'll do it again so they planned it for 1800 in the summertime and this year word about it had spread and many many more people came and they were not only pastors that were Presbyterian but they were pastors that were Methodist or Baptist and it seemed like denominational walls had no bearing on anything and they all just wanted to come together and seek the lord the people that were touched the previous year went back and talked about it and those that they talked to they wanted to come and they felt stirred and as they came together in the 18 1800 and they all began to do the same thing again they had some time of worship and prayer you know different people set aside a time of fasting they were seeking god and they took communion, now the Spirit of God fell in even a much greater way. And at these meetings that were taking place there, now many more people had come, and one of the people that came was a man named Barton Stone, who was a Presbyterian pastor of the church in Cambridge. And he was hungry, and he came there because he knew that God was moving. And there were powerful manifestations of the Holy Spirit which I'll talk about here in a little bit but he was seeing the Holy Spirit move so powerfully upon different people that his mind was absolutely blown by what he was seeing he knew that God had to be at work and see mr. McGready knew that the communion table was powerful he knew that this was something that was really deeply affecting people And so he preached a sermon about the communion table. And he took it from the passage, those that are familiar, when Jacob fled from his father's house because Esau wanted to kill him. And he was going to go to his uncle Laban. And he was going to meet, you know, Rachel and Leah there. But he was on his way. The Bible says that he laid down one night and he took a stone under his head and he slept. And he didn't realize that that was a general location that his granddaddy Abraham had created an altar there and prayed to God. But anyways, he was sleeping there. He had a dream. Remember this? The heavens open, and there was a ladder and the angels ascending and descending into that place. And Jacob woke up from that and he said, man, this is a dreadful place. This is a place where God dwells. And he named it Bethel, which in Hebrew, Beit means house, El is God. He named it the house of God where God dwelled. And so Mr. McGready took from that passage, and he was preaching on the communion table, and he said the communion table is a dreadful place. Because God is there. He said the communion table is a dreadful place. Because the redemption of guilty sinners is remembered. Because you remember the cross. You remember the brutality of. Of what Jesus had to go through for your salvation he said it's a dreadful place because you remember the bloody cross you remember Calvary he said the communion table is a dreadful place because the Holy One of Israel confers and sups with pardoned sinners with pardoned rebels that God himself would be in our midst and would fellowship with us and then finally his fourth point was the communion table is a dreadful place because heaven comes down to earth at the communion table and it was eerily prophetic in this sermon because heaven was coming down and invading this region and in this year of 1800 the Holy Spirit came in such a way that people were being hit by the power of God and just collapsing in God's presence and nobody was praying for them and there was there was a report of um, a woman which I believe I shared this with you guys through video when we were there but there was a woman a Baptist woman who had two daughters and both of her daughters just suddenly collapsed and it was as though they were dead you know they're laying there and she was concerned for them, as she had never seen that before and one of the daughters she was laying there fanning them and she was just watching what was going on and one of the daughters after time passed would kind of come to and you could hear her praying Lord forgive me have mercy forgive me for my sin and then she would just kind of go back unconscious and her mom realized that God was doing something very deep in them and after a time had passed one of her daughters got up and it was like her face was just kind of shining and she had a joy It went from being on the ground this this look of of grief and sorrow now she's full of joy but yet she began to preach and people that heard her said it sounded so heavenly it was so supernatural she began to preach and the people that were hearing her were also convicted and people began to fall again as they heard her preaching it was interesting because I think about the story of the Apostle Paul you know a lot of people get hung up on manifestations and I believe this there are a lot of people out there that claim that they really love the Apostle Paul and they love his writings in the Bible but if the Apostle Paul was in their midst today and he was giving just his testimony of how he got saved they wouldn't like him so much because here he is riding on a donkey and he has a vision a bright light he's thrown to the ground and can you shut that door for me please but he's thrown to the ground where he has this encounter with the lord he's convicted of his sin he's blinded mind you he's got to be led by the hand to somebody's house a man named ananias lays hands and prays for him scales fall off his eyes how weird is that right and then he begins to speak in tongues now you tell me how many places if somebody got up and told that story, they would embrace that story. Most people would run the Apostle Paul out and think he's a lunatic. But, oh, but, but they love Paul and they love his writings in the Bible, right? But it reminds me as, as I was reading this and I was, I was seeing all these stories of people by the hundreds and even the thousands that literally were having the same experience. Out of the clear blue they're there in a service all of a sudden By the hundreds and by the thousands at the same time struck down to the ground Where they're having this encounter with Jesus They feel so convicted and so grieved of their sin You're hearing people weeping You're hearing sorrow You're hearing some people wail And they're crying out asking God to forgive them and have mercy But as time went on all of a sudden their sorrow would turn to joy the look of grief that was on their countenance turned to joy and now they were getting up born again a new creation and this was not limited to people that have religious backgrounds there were even that came there and had the same experience as a matter of fact some people i'll get to this in a moment but there were different manifestations that were common and one of the manifestations was that people that would feel that strong conviction come upon them some of them would try to take out running from the place to get away from it just to collapse in mid-stride and have an encounter with the lord for themselves it was interesting because there was a a backslidden son of a preacher named uh, robert finley and he went there to mock his dad's name was james finley he was a great great man of god but he went there with somebody else and he was saying well he had heard about what was going on he said well if i fall i guarantee you it's not going to be some supernatural force that does it and he says i'm big enough that if anybody tries to push on me they're not going to get me down either that was his attitude and he went there to mock and make fun of things and he said that there he was in the midst of what was going on and all of a sudden the holy spirit's moving like that people are collapsing by the hundreds having encounters with God and he he wrote about it he said his lip began to quiver he began to shake uncontrollably his heart began to race he felt his eyes were starting to tear up and he took out running to get out of there and um, he got in the woods he was trying to get as far from that place and he ended up finding his way to a tavern he thought well i'll I'll just drink this off you know so he goes in there and has a few drinks didn't work the holy spirit was still on this man i believe probably his dad's prayers had a lot to do with his feet being guided there that night but nonetheless he comes out later and a friend of his they got together and they were riding off and his friend just said you know Robert if we don't get rid of our sin I think the devil's going to get us I really do that's what he said and he said whenever he said that it was like this conviction he said it was everything he could do just to break out and burst out in tears right there he just was so the Holy Spirit was so moving upon him but to make a long story short Robert Finley ended up getting everything right with God and he ended up becoming a great preacher of the gospel like his dad even somebody that fled from the revival, their life was transformed. Well, Barton Stone heard about what God was doing. He was the pastor at Cambridge. He heard about the Holy Spirit moving like that. And he was hungry for more. He was open to God doing something new in his life. And so, out, partly out of curiosity and partly out of hunger, he went. To James McGrady's meetings you know and he wanted to be there in and, and experiences he wanted to have an encounter with God and and he brought I think some people came with him but one person that came with him was not right with God so it was a good thing he came but Barton Stone was there and he said he saw all these different people being hit by the power of God and lives being transformed he said yes there was probably a few things here and there that were probably flesh But he said by and large he knew that god was there and that god was changing lives and he made an interesting observation it's kind of common sense but a lot of the revival critics need to hear this he said there is no way that this is the devil he said i'll tell you why he said people by the thousands and thousands are repenting of their sin they're truly accepting jesus as their savior they're really getting their life right with God. Then they're helping others get their life right with God. He said the devil would never do that. It's interesting how many critics of revival need a little common sense like that, right? But Barton Stone went there and he was, he was watching all that was going on. And he was just in awe. He had never seen God move like this. He said it was just like sovereign and supernatural the spirit of god it was like heaven on earth and people were being so touched and he began to notice some of the manifestations but before i get to that here was barton stone's heart after he was there in 1800 he went back and he began to tell the people in his church what was going on and one of the stories he was able to convey i'm sure was his friend that came that was a heathen Now he had different people come with it one guy wasn't right with God well while Barton is there in the revival he notices his friend just kind of thump on the ground and he looks down and he's just out for the count and so he's watching his friend same type of thing is happening to him that's happened to all these other people periodically he would come to and he had he have a look on his face of grief and sorrow Lord forgive me forgive me for my sin have mercy and then he would go back out but pretty soon as time passed his friend began to have a smile on his face he knew that he he was a new creation he was born again he was forgiven for his sin he got up and uh, Barton made note of that anyway he went back to tell his congregation about all that he experienced and all that was going on and it said that the people in Cambridge that were there really began to burn I mean they were hungry it stirred them up and this was a little presbyterian congregation but barton stone was somebody that had such a heart for unity he did not want it to just be a presbyterian thing at all in fact he was actually very adamant about that he um, went out of his way to put something into writing that said that he was not associated with man-made denominations, he wanted to just be known as a Christian and as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not want to be labeled. And after he shared this with his congregation about what was going on, he he said, "I would like to do this next year here at Cambridge." And the people wanted to do it too. And so they began to plan that they wanted it to be something that was interdenominational. They wanted the Baptists and the Methodists and all of them to come together, and he began to get word out. Now, you got to understand, up at this point, 1799, now 1800, people were really touched back in McGready's meetings, and word is spreading. And when people, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, because some of you maybe have not really been in revival, but I'm just telling you from experience, I was in revival in the 90s, that when people would come back from these revivals and talk about it, you felt it, okay? And so they were going back talking about it, and people, I'm telling you just from experience, people felt it. And so whenever, uh, now Barton Stone, he's at Cambridge. he says, let's do one here in eight, the summer of 1801. He's gonna move the date back to the beginning of summer. And he, was, he built things up to where he could have 350 people comfortably, but maybe 500 as an overflow because that was kind of the size of some of the meetings that he saw they came out of nowhere he was not anticipating this the milit our military sent people out there just to keep an eye on things because there were so many people going out there our military stated that there was somewhere between 20 to 30,000 people that descended on Cane Ridge Barton Stone was ready for 500 he had no idea they were coming like that the word it spread the Holy Spirit was moving people were going home and talking about it it was stirring something up in other people and all these people started to descend there that little region man all the people that lived there were doing their best to accommodate people that were coming you know, you'd come stay with us or whatever but that pretty soon filled up you know you have 20 30,000 people and so many people that came basically had to live out of their wagon with their family, and all they had was the food and the supplies they brought with them. But they came hungry to have an encounter with God. And so Barton Stone followed the same pattern. He just wanted to have a time of worship and prayer. Maybe people could do some fasting and seeking God, but it was a communion service. And as they took communion and they reverenced the body and the blood of Jesus and it was an interdenominational thing understand the walls were down when everybody came together around that communion table and they all had their eyes on the Lord and they just were worshiping him and reverencing his body and blood heaven came down and in 1801 the summer of 1801 this was the height of the revival before that it would have just been called the frontier revival now it's known as the Cambridge revival because it went from just 500 to a thousand meeting like that to 20 30,000 and now the Holy Spirit was moving with much greater force than ever before Barton Stone understood the power of unity he understood that we needed to let walls come down and unify he understood the power of the communion table this is just an observation but i believe that that some because i grew up around a lot of the the pentecostal circles okay and they'll understand anointing people with oil and laying hands and believing for healing and that's awesome powerful okay but it seems to me like the circles that i was around really don't have a deep profound understanding of the communion table And some of these people that had come from Presbyterian and Methodist backgrounds, they had more of a deep understanding of the power of the communion table. They knew that this had something to do with God meeting with people. He knew that it was affecting those that came. You understand what I'm saying? And I believe in River of Life, we understand the power of the communion table, but I think a lot of times a lot of the spirit-filled circles don't. And I grew up in them, so I can say that. I'm not being critical. It's an observation. And I think the greater body of Christ has a very, very little understanding of the power of water baptism, water immersion. I'm convinced of it. I believe that the Messianic groups understand it a lot more. All right. But Barton Stone was somebody that was very humble, and he was open to what God was doing. And so when twenty to thirty thousand people came and the Holy Spirit began to fall, there was no way that Barton Stone could minister to all those people. This was before the days of PA systems. And so they would be Barton up there preaching, but they would be a Baptist preacher, maybe a football field away in length that was out there preaching as well there'd be a Methodist preacher over here to his left off in a distance preaching and maybe somebody that had just got up up off the ground that had a powerful encounter with the Lord preaching to those around them and he had no problem with that and it was interesting because the message was all the same the people getting off the ground that didn't know anything they weren't trained in the Word of God but the message was all the same across the board in this revival was repent get the sin out turn from your sin and turn unto God look to the cross look to Jesus look to the blood ask God for mercy ask him for forgiveness that was what was being preached throughout that field during the Green Ridge Revival whether it was a Baptist preacher or a Methodist or a Presbyterian that was what the Holy Ghost was speaking and people were being swept into the kingdom by the thousands upon thousands upon thousands But during this time and just like many other revivals when heaven comes down with that type of intensity there is manifestations of the Holy Spirit and I believe because I've wondered about this why does the Holy Spirit seem to do things that he's got he has to know that it's gonna offend the religious and it's like the Holy Spirit seems to be doing it deliberately To tick off religious people or something you know but i may warn people about a religious spirit in our region in my opinion if you do a study on a religious spirit and then you do a study on the jezebel spirit and you were to blend those two things together you would get like religious witchcraft and i really believe that that's been the stronghold here and people need to be real careful because it's a very dangerous thing So religion, a religious spirit, here's some different characteristics. Fault finding, these people are very critical. They sit back and they they look at preachers, they look at churches, and maybe they're new or something, but they're very judgmental, they're very critical of what's going on. It's a criticism, and that's a religious spirit. Also, um, like debating and arguing and fighting over the word, that's a religious spirit. And there's other aspects of a religious spirit like traditions of men and being real legalistic. But a couple things here was a religious spirit can be very territorial about things. But you could see in this that the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, everybody was just kind of coming together. So I believe that what was going on was a freedom from the religious spirit. You see what I'm saying? And that that also had a lot to do with the intensity of what, what was going on. And a religious spirit, I remember at Brownsville, and I went there as much as I could, God really touched my life there, but I remember that they said that probably the greatest deliverance that happened at Brownsville was from a critical spirit. People would come in that were religious, and they were critical of the preaching, they were critical of the music, they found criticism with this person they didn't like the way they looked they didn't like the way they talked. they didn't like the music all this criticism and God would have to deliver them from that and another thing that a religious spirit will do a religious spirit is not merciful if another person is trying to grow in the Lord and trying to overcome their sin you know and they're they're making an effort a religious spirit will just browbeat them and just be very hard on them That's not God. That's a religious spirit. But when the Holy Spirit is moving, people are merciful and they're wanting to help people to overcome. All right, but here's some of the manifestations that Barton Stone wrote about. He said when the Holy Spirit fell, he saw some of the the craziest manifestations. Now, this is all through church history. Every revival has had manifestations of the Holy Spirit the most common manifestation was people falling out and I would say probably to this day that's still the most common manifestation of the Holy Spirit I mean people just cannot stand because the presence of God is so strong their legs get weak and they just simply collapse now someone says well why do they fall they can't stand it's not complicated it's, it's just really simple okay that's why they fall alright another thing is Barton Stone said that there was also like people jerking or trembling that their bodies would kind of convulse like that or shake he said he saw that people were shaking and jerking and trembling under the power he said also that when people would jerk sometimes that there would be like a groan or a a shout and it was you know they used terminology back then we probably wouldn't use today like he said sounded like maybe something kind of a bark or something but it wasn't that it was just like a groan or a shout when their body would convulse so he he heard like shouting and loud groaning another common manifestation was all these people under the under the power all over and cries for mercy sometimes a shriek and other people that had found mercy laughing hysterically And some of you guys have probably experienced some of these things already in River of Life because there is a revival atmosphere here. But it's interesting because many times we'll go through and pray for everybody and it's interesting to see how the Holy Spirit will move. You'll hear one person really weeping. Another person will be really solemn and quiet. Another person, you'll look at them and they're just trembling under the power. Another person may be groaning in intercession. And then another person over here laughing. (laughs) I mean... It's just God, the Holy Spirit, touching people however He wants to touch people. Also, in Cambridge, was dancing in the Spirit. He said that there would be people that were really touched by God. And he said it was as though they went into another world. They were just oblivious to other people around them. And they just would begin to just dance and sway before the Lord. And he said it was so beautiful. He said some people were going really fast other people really slow but he said in all the manifest, all the manifestations he saw where people were struck down suddenly he said he never saw one person really get hurt it was an amazing thing to him you understand when he went he went there open to god but he was in awe of what he saw and so he was really paying attention to this going man i've never seen that before what's going on there and he's really documenting it see But he said that probably the craziest manifestation in Cambridge. I've seen all these other manifestations, but I've never seen this one, at least not to this degree. But he said that there would be somebody that would get hit by the power, and he said their feet were flat on the earth, but the top of their body would go back and forth like this violently, where there, a lady's hair would whip to the ground. He said he couldn't believe it. There's no way you could do that. Another one he said that blew his mind was people that would tremble or shake on the power. He said that they were people that their heads were going back and forth so fast and forward that you couldn't make out their facial features. You can't do that naturally. You can't make yourself do that. That has to be God doing that. And it just blew his mind. And again, the people that when the spirit of God came into that place so strong they felt that conviction they knew something was happening to them and they would take out run and try to escape that was another common manifestation out they went take sprinting to get out of there and they would usually 90 percent of the time he said they would collapse on their way out (laughs) have an encounter with god and they would just be another testimony of somebody getting saved on their way out you know you know we chuckle about some of these things but And I've wondered about, I really have wondered about this. Why, Holy Spirit, do you do these things? And I believe that, I believe God showed me, and I I think I got the answer. Because God will give his grace to the humble. The proudful religious crowd will hate it and leave. But the humble people will just humble themselves and receive. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes in a way that you have to be humble to receive. And let me give you some common manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Now, this is beyond what was going on at Cambridge, okay? But I'm just going to read this off. It's not in your notes, but as I as I get the sermon up and going, I'll try to put the the larger version here that's got all this, but. I'm trying to also preach a little bit on these lines because I'm trying to get people ready when God shows up. It's more, it's more intense than what you've already experienced, as it, at least what's coming. It's more intense. So things are going to be more intensified in every area, and I'm trying to kind of get you acclimated to what you're going to be seeing, okay? But here's some manifestations in the Bible. Number one, speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 2. Very common in revival. Now the interesting thing is at Cambridge, the devil basically stole tongues from the body of Christ during the Middle Ages. It was very uncommon for somebody to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues before Susa. Very uncommon. But toward the end of the Cambridge Revival in 1801, toward the end, there were some people that were baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. And this kind of gave way to what was later known as the Pentecostal holiness movement that preceded um, Azusa even though most of them were never baptized in the Holy Spirit but they believed and let me tell you something too just to sidetrack for a moment persecution you know James McGready, when he was preaching back in the Carolinas and they burned his church down they hated him wanted to run him off you know he could have said, well, you know, I'll change my message, I'll water it down, I want everybody to like me. And he could have called those people and said, hey, help me rebuild the church, I'll calm everything down, you know what I'm saying? But he wasn't going to do that. He preached another hard, convicting sermon on his way out. And I believe that many times people are tested. Are you going to change your message? Are you going to be a man pleaser? And I remember reading about um, William Seymour. And uh, I could rabbit trail f- for a long time. I need to be careful to keep on point with this. But, but he was a mighty man of God, but he had not been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet. And he sat under Parham, and they talked about this Pentecostal experience. When William Seymour went to California, the first church that he began to pastor, he preached on Acts 2. He preached on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the people ran him off and said don't come back William Seymour could have gotten discouraged he could have said well I need to back off this subject I need to quit preaching on this I need just everybody to like me but he wasn't like that he ended up in Bonnie Bray Street at a house with maybe a dozen other African Americans and they began to pray for revival but he was not gonna back off that message now here's the miracle to me about that William Seymour had such a conviction about the baptism in the Holy Spirit in tongues, that even though he himself had not experienced it, he was willing to be persecuted for that message. And so what does God do? God gives William Seymour the Sousa Street Revival because he knew that William Seymour would not back off that message. He wouldn't be a wimp. When things got tough, He was going to buckle down and he was still going to preach the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that was what happened at Azusa. God restored back Acts 2 to the church. People that know anything about revival history knows before that time, speaking in tongues was very rare. But because of Azusa, it spread all over the world. Every Pentecostal movement right now all over the world is traced back to Azusa Street. Think about that for a minute. And James McGready, when he moved to Kentucky, God knew here's a man that's going to preach the truth even if people are going to try to burn down his church. So where was God going to send revival? To that location. It was interesting too because McGready was a man that was very disciplined in his life. He was a man that was given to prayer and fasting, which I'm going to get to here in a moment. But let me give you... I'm going to read through these quickly, but they'll be in the notes that are online. Common manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues, number two, falling under the power. Scriptures like Ezekiel 1.28, 3.23, Daniel 10, 9, Revelation 1.17, John 18.6, Acts chapter 9. People being delivered from demons. Even right in the middle of church. Where's that in the Bible? Under Jesus' ministry. The guy with the demon cried out in the synagogue in Luke four thirty-three and was delivered. Jerking, shaking, and trembling. Daniel ten seven, Jeremiah twenty-three, nine, Habakkuk three, sixteen, Psalm ninety-nine, verse one, Psalm one hundred fourteen, seven. Going into like a trance. You remember these people who fall under the power, the Apostle Paul fell under the power, had a vision. But there was a lady named Mariah Woodworth Etter that also had a lot of trances. People would get caught up in the spirit like that. But remember this, Peter in Acts chapter 10 was on the rooftop and the Bible says he went into a trance and he had this vision of this sheet coming down with un, you know animals that were not kosher. And the Lord said, kill and eat. And it had to do with the gospel going to the Gentiles but he went into a trance. And I've heard stories after stories after stories in revival of somebody somebody in the meeting and they're just like this talk, all of a sudden they just go into another world. And they're there for like an hour, two hours, three hours. And then they come out and they're totally transformed. They had some major encounter with God. Shrieks, Acts 8, 7. Groaning and moaning and wailing and travailing. A lot of that is intercessory, by the way. Romans 8, 26. Intense weeping or intense laughter. Nehemiah 1, 4. Ezekiel 10, 1. Psalm 126, 5 through 6. Deep bowing. Remember I was saying flat-footed. Here they go, back and forth. Deep bowing. Ezra 10, 1. Psalm thirty five thirteen through 14. Laughing in the spirit. You know, people think a lot of times of Rodney Hart Brown's First person to think, you got to understand, laughing in the spirit was long before Brother Rodney. I remember seeing videos, and you probably have too, Kenneth Hagin back in the 80s when laughter was breaking out in his meetings. Not to mention all these revivals that are historic at laughter. I read where um, John Wesley said the same thing, that they'd be preaching, people would be struck to the ground, There'd be weeping and wailing under the conviction of their sin. Then they would come out of that, and they would be forgiven and right with God. There would be joy and laughter. Some of them would talk about seeing heaven. Others would talk about seeing Jesus. Some may saw an angel. They were just in a heavenly atmosphere in Wesley's meetings. And there were times that, you know, on the Isle of Hebrides and other revivals like this, Duncan Campbell said he went to preach one evening. And the Spirit of God would just fall so hard. And he said these group of people were there and some of them just began to run to the, the pulpit and they were just weeping and just wailing. Some of them would collapse in their pew, but others were, were there and they would just be just wailing and beating their fist on the ground or maybe beating their head, which they shouldn't do. Obviously, somebody needs to help them out, but they're just, they don't know what to do. So that's the thing that people need to understand. You have a bunch of heathen that all of a sudden are in that atmosphere. They don't know what to do. They just feel convicted. They need somebody to tell them, here's how you pray. Ask Jesus for mercy. Look to Jesus, you see. And that's what Duncan Campbell was doing. He was helping these people. But they were just responding to that conviction of the Spirit of God. And I remember at Brownsville, you would see people just weeping. They would run to the altar. They would run. And you could tell that they were just heathen right off the street. But they were under that conviction and still to this day on some of the recordings you may not even know what you're hearing but many of those times you hear a shriek or you hear somebody wailing like that it was the lost people that were in the altars at brownsville that didn't know how to pray but they were under the conviction of the spirit and they were just wailing and steve had to say everybody look this way here's how you pray and he would lead them in a prayer to give their life to jesus but they didn't know how to pray also being still and solemn in the spirit of god psalm 25 5 27 14 131 verse 2 that's probably the only manifestation of all these that the religious people will like <laughs> being still and solemn right another one is being drunk in the spirit acts two thirteen. they thought well these guys are drunk with wine and the apostle paul told the church in Ephesus don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the spirit it was a reference of being filled to overflowing with the spirit and people are so overcome by the Spirit of God sometimes that they're literally tipsy as though they're drunk also visions and dreams acts 10 9 through 17 and Joel 2 28 the Lord said in the latter days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh sons and sons and daughters will prophesy they'll be what dreams and visions so many people will have visions in revival it's it's it becomes more common that somebody was under the power and they felt like that they saw heaven or they felt like that they saw angels maybe in the ceiling or they they saw Jesus but they're given to more visions because they're in an atmosphere of heaven another very common manifestation in revival and this should be the centerpiece is people will confess and repent of their sins even openly and they will want to make things right with somebody that they've wronged that's a common manifestation of the holy spirit they will confess their sin at times if they need to openly before men but they want to make things right with people that they've wronged and you see that in acts chapter 19 with the apostle paul that was his greatest revival acts 19 When he was in Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was born in the fires of revival. That's why the apostle Paul had to write to them so much about spiritual warfare. But in Acts chapter 19, 18 through 20. It says people that had practiced the dark arts brought all their paraphernalia. And they burned it in a big bonfire. They they repented openly of their sins. And turned unto God. Another common manifestation is major healings and miracles. Matthew twelve thirteen. So I want to close tonight with three things that I want to give you that I believe can change people's lives. I'm, I'm saying what I'm about to say very deliberately. I'm hoping it'll help some people out there, but I realize people beyond just that are here are hearing this too the internet and various means that we have look the thing is we all know that there's some people that are just going to go after God more than others there's some people that they're going to have the discipline in their life to seek God more than other people do I think about James McGready, who was given to prayer and and spent time in fasting and he was hungry for God And that's where God poured out His Spirit. But sadly, a lot of people lack the discipline to have a consistent prayer life and to give themselves to prayer and fasting and to really fan the flame in their life and stoke that fire in their life. And inevitably, they're going to get lukewarm. But I'm going to give you three things that really changed my life as biblical patterns. One of them was in the Old Testament is called the evening and the morning sacrifice in Hebrew it's called the Korban Tamid and this is it means in Hebrew like the eternal sacrifice but what that was was every evening and every morning and it's interesting if you do a study on this too because look up how many times in the scriptures it says about the time of the evening sacrifice this happened or about the time of the morning sacrifice, this happened. It's interesting because this was going on every day. It seemed to open something up, and um, I, man, I gotta guard my rabbit trailing. Okay, so I'm just gonna stick to morning and evening. So what the priests would do was every evening and every morning, and every evening would be three o'clock because uh, the scripture in Genesis there was evening, then there was morning, then the next day. So the view is that the day ends at sunset but also begins the next day begins at sunset okay that's the Hebrew mindset so in the evening sacrifice is the closing of one day and the beginning of the next and so the the priest would come at about three o'clock and he had to kill kill a lamb for his sin but also I believe that he was a representation of the whole nation in many ways but there was a lamb that died every evening sacrifice and he would take a grain offering called the mincha and he would put that on the altar and he had a wine libation that he would pour out before the Lord so you have a picture and type here of a lamb being slain it reminds you of Passover where the blood is applied doesn't it so it's it's like every evening the blood is being applied to your life your family your home as the blood of the lamb but also the grain which was unleavened bread okay and the wine represents communion isn't that interesting that this pattern is there a lot of people don't realize it so every evening something God laid on my heart and if you guys can catch this I'll put it out there but if you can catch this it'll change your life change this literally changed my life so every evening before I go to bed I always have a time Where I take the Lord's Supper don't feel like everybody has to that's just what I do from that pattern And I always have a little bit left over and I go out to my front yard area And I pour that out and say Lord I apply the blood over this property Anything here not of you goes in Jesus name but this is holy ground It's under the blood And I take the Lord's Supper and then my wife and I um, We always pray together before we go to bed and we really pray She'll speak a blessing over me, I bless her, and then we agree together and we pray. We pray for the next day, we pray over our night's rest, and one of the things that I felt led to pray a long time ago was that we would rest in the glory of God, and God is so honored that, that the presence of God many times has been so strong in the nighttime. and I'm sharing this for your sake, but I don't like sharing personal things like this, the people that know me, but I'm sharing it for your sake. But there's times that the Spirit of God has been so strong that whenever I'm working the altars, I'll recognize, man, that's the same thing I feel in the evenings, you know. But the glory of God, and where I got that from was Samuel. Samuel went in, he was trained as a priest, and so he had to do this. And I can just picture little Samuel doing this evening sacrifice, and he would kill the lamb, the grain offering, the wine libation. He would go in and there you had the table of showbread in the holy place maybe he partook of that it's available he would go to the menorah make sure that it was trimmed properly had the oil it needed and then he would go to the golden altar which was right before the veil and he had to put a hot coal from outside in there a burning hot coal and he would sprinkle the incense and it would that incense would just fill that holy place and he would worship and pray but Samuel was not just about religious ritual Samuel loved the Lord and was hungry. So what Samuel would do instead of just leaving after he did his religious duty Samuel probably went on the other side of the golden altar, but he laid down Right up against that veil as close to the ark as you can get and he would just soak in the glory It's possible. He went into the Holy of Holies, but you're not supposed to but it just says in the Bible He laid by the ark so I'm assuming He went on the other side of that golden altar pressed up against that veil and laid down and there he is in the presence of God that incense fills the place which the incense speaks of worship and prayer and to his right he could look and that menorah was still lit and he just wanted to be in God's presence and it was in that place as he lingered in God's presence that God spoke to him and so as you rest at night in the glory Then you can wake up the next day in the glory and this is a time of the morning sacrifice So every morning the priest had to go again. He had to kill lamb same thing The grain the wine poured out. He went into the holy place Trim the menorah burn the incense worship and pray So the morning time is a time again where if you want to take the Lord's Supper You can come under the blood and to worship and pray and begin your day that way and let me just remind people of enoch i believe that enoch was a picture and type of those that will be raptured in these last days it's just my personal opinion enoch walked with god and then disappeared he was raptured okay in the same way i believe that there's going to be a group of people in these last days that god is going to be moving so powerfully in revival that, like enoch they're going to have a heart to live and walk with the Lord. And suddenly they're just going to be gone. But I believe the evening and the morning sacrifice. Had a lot to do that with that in my life. And again I love everybody. I'm saying this to try to help people. But a lot of people. And I'm saying this to help you. But a lot of people will hear this leave out go home and just keep doing the same thing they've always done and not change a bit they won't apply it you know and so therefore things remain the same but i'm preaching this for the remnant out there that'll go oh there's something to that and they're going to start applying it to their life and then they're going to find that the glory of god is coming in their home they're going to find that their evening time is in god's presence they're waking up in god's presence they have a rich powerful prayer life in the morning because why because they have the discipline to get up and seek the lord and they're hungry for more think about james McGready. where was god going to send revival to somebody that was disciplined in prayer and fasting all right the next thing that changed my life was the tabernacle god comes in humble places the tabernacle was beautiful on the inside but the outside was just wrapped In something like porpoise or badger type skins. It was very plain. It was very bland. If you were to look at the tabernacle from just the outside. You would ask yourself what's the big deal? And that reminds me of Cane Ridge. If people were to come and just look at this little log cabin church. Out in the sticks. They would say what's the big deal? The big deal was that God dwelled in that tabernacle. The big deal was that God dwelled in Cambridge. It never was about the building, was it? It was the fact the Lord was there. But what changed my life about the tabernacle was this tabernacle pattern that God showed me. When you came through the veil, there was one way in, and that represents the gospel and people that are going to preach the truth. You have to be willing to preach and embrace the truth the second thing was the cross the bronze altar the blood this is where you yourself in your prayer time and also us at church at the beginning we take some time to examine ourselves and get washed at the communion table it's like washing at the laver and the bronze altar was where the lambs were killed and the animals it represents the cross and it's a time of taking communion and remembering the body and the blood of the lord and coming under that blood that's the outer court we deal with our sin we deal with unforgiveness and we take time with it not rush through it then you move from the outer court into the holy place this is the place obviously the communion table is referenced there but the holy spirit the menorah represents the holy spirit but the incense represents praise and worship prayer and intercession. So in your own personal life, you can have this if, if people want to. It's available. But it's the same pattern that I do here at church because God showed it to me. We take time in the outer court to come through the blood and really get things dealt with. We go into the inner court, we welcome the Holy Spirit, and we begin to fill this place with the incense of praise and worship, prayer and intercession. And then there's a passing beyond the veil. Jesus ripped that veil, mind you but it's going beyond it into the glory. And that's what happens every Saturday. We take time at the outer court to deal with the issues, get under the blood. Then we go into the holy place together where there's praise and worship, prayer and intercession. The Holy Spirit begins to move and we're moving with the Holy Spirit. And that priest would walk in those bells and pomegranates from the bottom, those bells would chime. You know what that is? That's worshiping in tongues. That's operating in the gifts. That's when Brianna leading worship begins to sing prophetically and begin to sing in the spirit. That's those bells and pomegranates chiming in here. And that place begins to smell like incense in the spirit realm. And pretty soon what happens, the glory of God comes in this place. It's the tabernacle pattern. You can have it at home if you want it. If, if you have the discipline to go for it, consistently go after it with all your heart, you'll find it. What does the Bible say? If you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. And then the last thing that changed my life dramatically was Isaiah 58, the pattern. Five things. Humility, prayer, fasting, giving, and deeply conquering your life. Those five things, if you'll do that, The Bible says, you will call to me, I will answer you. You'll cry out to me, and I'll say, here I am. In other words, if you'll practice a life of humility, prayer, fasting, giving, and consecrating your life, the Lord says, you'll ask me for things, I'll do it. Cry out to me, and I will be near you. How many want God near you? this changed my life I began to live more of a life of prayer and fasting but I have found that every revival somebody prayed y'all remember this if there's nothing else you took away from this tonight remember this I'm telling you see people say well why did Cambridge happen James McGready prayed and fasted is why it happened and then he began to get his church on fire and they began to pray and fast they were asking God for revival every revival in history we may not always know who prayed, but somebody prayed. And somebody prayed fervently and got a hold of God, and God responded. You know what revival is? It's God responding to intercession. If you want a simple definition, it is the fact that people, somebody, cried out to God and God responded to their prayers. That's really what revival is. And when true revival comes, true revival historically i could go through every revival i could spend another hour right now which i won't do that but i could go through all them every true revival there was conviction and repentance of sin it was not just a feel-good thing it was people getting right with god if that's not going on it's not really revival it's just feel-good meetings which that's okay because we need meetings where we feel good but it's not really revival because god is going to come and deal with things that need to be dealt with in revival so every revivalist everyone that ever pioneered anything for god were people that were disciplined in a lifestyle of prayer and fasting and i'll close with this william seymour was so desperate for revival frank bartleman too during that time of azusa frank bartleman was praying and fasting so hard for revival he lost so much weight that his family was concerned for it he was desperate. And, and William Seymour was in that, that house on Bonnie Bray Street. He was so desperate for revival, he was praying up to five to seven hours a day. But God came down at Azusa in response to their prayers. And it literally changed the world. Because people went from Azusa Street as missionaries, baptized in the Holy Ghost and with fire, and they went all over the entire world. And spread revival fire to this day you can find pockets where the gospel has went all over the world that goes back to the Azusa Street revival that's how powerful that move of God was it didn't happen until people got desperate enough to pray and fast if you want a personal revival in your own personal life I gave you the three things that changed my life the evening and morning sacrifice the tabernacle pattern of prayer and then a a lifestyle of prayer and fasting giving consecrating your life if you'll discipline yourself to do it how many knows that we've got to live a disciplined life if you'll discipline yourself to do those things and go after god you'll be surprised at how powerful revival will break out in your life you'll be surprised but see god's looking for hungry people and i don't know about you but i'm hungry for more and i'm gonna tell you something i've been in revival i've been in real revival There's some things people say a revival and they're good meetings. They are good meetings and good people that love God. But I've been in real historic revivals where God moved. I've been there and God has touched me mightily, but I'm so much hungry for more. I don't want to spend my life talking about what happened 20 years ago. I want God to move tonight. And I'm praying and seeking God and I hope you're with me. That God's going to come down and save some souls in the near future. I'm really believing and crying out for a harvest of souls. That's one of the things I'm living for. And I believe in God to come down like he did at Cambridge Ridge. Where people are convicted and they're getting things right with God. Alright, so Father we thank you for this word tonight. We thank you so much for the power of your spirit. And we thank you Lord for the awesome power of your word. And Lord, we commit this night unto you and we ask you to bless this sermon tonight that it will get where it needs to be and do what it needs to do. We thank you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's close out these different recordings and um, we're gonna pray for people tonight. God really touched me when I was at Cambridge. I don't say that lightly, he really did. And so if y'all want prayer tonight, I'm gonna believe God to touch you and really do a powerful work in your life tonight, okay? and you know my wife had a powerful encounter with god we came out of there and she just began to open up and talk about all kinds of things and god just began to do a deep profound work in both of us it was just a place where god's presence you know what's interesting god may have moved 200 years ago 218 years ago but his image still lingers there isn't that something